All right, continuing this morning in our recap of the book of Romans in chapter 9, looking at 10 verses from verse 19 through 29, Justice, My People, Part 2. And as we continue this recap, we're trying to kind of put together the, the big picture of what Paul has been saying to the church in Rome through this epistle. And Paul begins and says that he is not ashamed, but instead is eagerly obliged to the gospel. A gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. The wrath of God revealed against men for their sinfulness. The righteousness of God revealed in making propitiation for them. The ransoming back of His people purchasing our lives with the lifeblood of Christ. So that God, who is just, might also be the justifier of sinners. That Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as so much more than belief. That it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The very power of God on display. Faith being credited as the very righteousness of God himself. And having been so justified through the gift of faith, we rejoice. Literally, we boast in the things that God is doing in us, in the hope that we have in him, for we were dead born in the image of Adam, a man of dust and unto dust, and yet in Christ we live, because with Christ we died. The identity of a Christian is those that have been baptized by the Holy Spirit in such a way that they have died with Christ, they have been buried with Christ, they have been risen with Christ by the glory of the Father to walk in the newness of life. What a profound identity it is. Life from death calling into existence that which did not exist, whereby the Spirit we were buried with Him in death that we may be raised with Him in life. You see, men are hopeless unto themselves. We were born slaves and we will die slaves. Men are enslaved, not from outside of themselves, lest they may perhaps escape. Men are enslaved by their own being and by their own desires. Romans chapter 8, verses 8 speaks of the natural man when it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you, you Christian, are not in the flesh you have a new being, which is why in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul continues and says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. If this is true of you, you have been adopted. You have been set as a son of God in Jesus Christ. And having been so set, you have an inheritance. The Spirit Himself as the earnest money, the guarantee of what God will do. God will not forfeit on what He has already paid. The very life of His Son. We have an inheritance sealed by the Holy Spirit to the extent that even when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Holy Spirit makes intercession to the Father on our behalf. And therefore we can say with boldness that all things work for good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Are you called according to His purpose? Do you love God? If so, then friends, you have never had a bad day. 
You may have had a tough day. You may have had a hard season. But it is all working for your good. We are called and we love out of that call. And that call is not haphazard, but it is specifically according to the purpose of God. Salvation belongs to our Lord. Romans chapter 9, verse 16, one of the most definitive statements in all of the text. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Friends, our God is free. He is free, lest he not be God. He is free, he is not bound. He has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And men in their flesh will rise up and ask the question that Paul asked rhetorically last week. Is there injustice, therefore, on God's part? And the answer to that is not simply no means, but not being. Such is contrary to the being of God. As a matter of fact, to even ask such a question is fallacious in nature. That question is based in a fallacy. God cannot be unjust, for all of his ways are justice. And he defines what justice is, not the standard of justice defining his character. In this, there is good news. Man, there is gospel here. Friends, this is the gospel. But the fact is, this is a God who has mercy and has compassion. And his mercy and his compassion are not the opposite of his justice because all his ways are justice, including his mercy and his compassion. Mercy and compassion are not the opposite of justice. Instead, mercy and compassion are part and partial to God's justice. God's, God's justice, according to Scripture, is not complete unless it includes God's mercy and God's compassion. We saw last week that Paul used the example of Pharaoh, and God hardened Pharaoh, and in doing so, he exposed his godless and lawless heart in doing so, he both destroyed a lawless man and showed mercy and compassion to billions of his people over the generations. And yet even so, the children of Adam, the children of Eve, the children of those who partook of the fruit that was forbidden, specifically so, they could elevate themselves and stand on equal footing with their creator. Though they failed to do what they intended, and the promise of the serpent was proved to them a lie, they just can't help but to accuse God as though he were their equal. And so Paul continues this morning in Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19 through 20, and says, you will say then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, 
Why have you made me like this? Here in Romans chapter 9, we see on display in this rhetorical questioning by the Apostle Paul the insolence of the creature towards their creator. Ask the question, is there injustice on God's part? And Paul answers, it's impossible for there to be injustice on God's part. It's a fallacious question. All of God's ways are justice. He defines justice. If he did it, it's just. And here's what his justice looks like. It contains mercy and compassion. And it contains it on whomever he will put it. It also contains a hardening and wrath. And it contains it on whomever he will put it. Because God is free and God is just. And it therefore depends not on the will or the efforts, the the actions of a man, but it depends on God who has mercy. And yet man is not satisfied. He would continue to accuse. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Well, if you want to ask the question honestly, which is not happening here, but if you want to ask the question honestly, who can resist his will? The answer is simple. It's none. None can resist his will. Not man, not angel. Satan has been trying to resist his will ever since the day that pride was found in his heart and fire came forth from his heart and self-consumed him. He's been trying to resist his will ever since then. In the order of creation, he makes us at the moment look like bugs. Won't always be that way. But it's that way right now. And he's had no luck resisting his will. Who can resist his will? None. Not man, not angel. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers... Are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. I think one of my favorite passages on this particular topic comes out of the book of Daniel in chapter 4 and verse 35. It speaks of both the freedom of God and the justice of God in that freedom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will. He does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here out of the book of Daniel, we see the freedom of God. He does all according to his will. We see the justice of God. No one can call him on the carpet. No one can call him to account. None can say to him, what have you done? Who can resist his will? No one. Neither man nor angel. And so, to those who would ask this question in Rome, Paul explicitly reminds them of two things. He reminds them of their station and he reminds them of the relationship that their station has with God, their creator. He reminds them of their station. He says, who, O man, remember what you are. From dust you came, 
And from dust you shall return. Remember your station. But don't just remember your station. Remember the relationship that you in your station has with the God to whom you are accusing. He is not simply any God. He is the only God. He is your creator. And according to Colossians chapter 1, your sustainer by which your very fabric of your being is being held together moment to moment you will say to me then why does he still find fault for who can resist his will but who are you O man to answer back to god not just any god will what is molded say to its molder why have you made me like this now explicitly paul reminds them of their station in their relationship rhetorically paul rebukes them Who are you? That is not an intellectual question. (laughs) That question is a loaded gun pointed directly at the heart of the natural man. He's not simply asking, who are you, as though I'm looking for information. He's asking, who do you think you are? Oh, man in your station that you would say to the one who molded you in relationship to your creator and sustainer, who do you think you are that you should even dare to ask such a question? But if you want to answer in the context of the potter and the clay, which is what is coming, and certainly you can't have this idea of potter and clay without recalling Back, O man, where man came from in the Garden of Eden, where we actually see Christ himself with his own hands forming Adam from the very dirt of the ground. Who are you? You're the moistened dirt that the master creator is shaping to his own will. So you are. You know, it's funny, as Christians, we talk about humility a lot until it comes time to get humble, and then it's hard, always hard. This is is the nature of man. It's not the nature of the new creation. It's not the nature of the glorified Christian. But this is the nature of the natural man. Man, you're the moistened dirt that he has ordered and organized to an extremely high fashion. To shape according to his will. Now I would have you note, and I, I probably don't need to point this out to you, I think it's probably pre- pretty clear in the text. Paul is, you notice Paul doesn't beat around the bush here very much. This is, Paul is direct. You would probably even say abrupt. I mean, he's making this argument, and then man just hears the who do you think you are? Paul is direct, Paul is abrupt. As a matter of fact, By today's standards, we would probably call it harsh and unloving. I would argue that today's standards are miscalibrated based off the text. But what he does here would never qualify as seeker-friendly. It does not attempt to be persuasive and yet comfortable in its approach. Paul's not doing anything here to, to make people at ease. He's doing exactly the opposite. Man, he's turning up the heat as as hard as it'll go. 
And we look at the ministry of Christ and we see the way he responds to people in their sin. And we see him model two different things. We see him come gently and in compassion, weeping over them. We see him say stuff like, hey boys, you who are without sin, pick up the first stone. We also see him model stuff like look at Peter and go, get behind me, Satan. Jesus never really wants to fit the mold. Here we see Paul speaking by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, doing the same thing. And it's abrupt. And it's harsh. And by modern standards, it would be considered unloving. And so the question here is, why is it that Paul approaches this particular topic in this instance so abruptly? And the answer is in the text. The men that are asking this question are not honest brokers. They're not seeking for the truth. They're seeking to justify a position that they hold and are refusing to depart from in order to go to the truth. They're not seeking for the truth, but seeking to justify themselves and are willing to accuse and even put God in the wrong as being the unjust one in order that they may stand justified. And Paul has no use for it. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, here's how we know that. Because if they were truly seeking the truth, they would have accepted it when it was given to them by the apostle through the inspiration, the infallible word of the Holy Spirit himself just two breaths ago in verse 16. If they were seeking the truth, they would have accepted it when they were told it. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. There it is in the negative, but now in the positive, but on God who has Mercy. Friends, if they were looking for the truth, they stepped ankle deep in it. But they're not looking for the truth. They're looking for argument and self-justification and are even willing to throw the justness of God under the bus in order to get it. They are so brazen and so arrogant, they would speak of him as though he were their equal and they had grounds to make accusations. They don't want the truth. Paul gave them the truth in no uncertain terms. It therefore depends not on humans. It depends on God who has mercy. He hardens whom he wills. He has compassion on who he will. There's the end of the matter. Well, but, no buts. Who do you think you are? As though you could speak to the one who created you as though you could make an accusation. These are those of which it is spoken that they are constantly seeking. Oh boy, and we love to do this. Well, I, I don't know, Pastor, I just hadn't found the truth yet. I, I'm still trying to work this deal out. What do you mean you hadn't found the truth yet? Read verse 16. Now look. 
Paul's a complicated guy. Verse 16 is not a complicated verse. When it comes down to critical moments, Paul will distill it all the way down. A first grader can understand that. Who does it depend on, kid? Not humans. Depends on God. Boom. Done. Now, is there stuff you don't understand about that? Maybe. Is there a part about that you need to work out and try to fit? Yeah, sure. The question is, is can you stand up and say it's true? Absolutely. They're not honest brokers. The old truism says that a man who is honestly mistaken when confronted with the truth either ceases to be mistaken or ceases to be honest. Paul confronted them with the truth. They rejected it because they preferred the argument for their own justification. And he has absolutely zero use for it. Which is exactly the way that you see Christ respond between compassion and rebuke. You see someone that doesn't know any better, and man, Christ comes to them with compassion and says, look, you're in your sin, and I will save you. You see Peter, who ought well to know better, and he throttles him. A man honestly mistaken when confronted with the truth either ceases to be mistaken or ceases to be honest. Paul gave him the truth. They want to hold on to their justification. They're willing to accuse God to do it. And Paul says, who do you think you are? You need to concern yourself with a proper relationship between you and your creator. And so he continues in verse 21. And he says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? And the word for honorable here is teme in the Greek, and the word for dishonorable is a modification of that, atemia. And it doesn't really quite come across in the English as well as it should. It doesn't mean a, a vessel that's honorable, that's kind of like elevated above the standard, and then one that just doesn't have any honor, like it's just kind of your everyday stuff. You know, it's not like... Like, somehow in this world, and I don't know how, I ended up inheriting my mother's china. Like, I'm going to have any use for china, right? It sets up in the case. And so, you know, here you've got kind of the honorable dishes, and then you've got just the regular stuff that you use every day. And this stuff, you know, it's, it's, it's not honorable. It's just kind of normal. That's not what, it's vulgar, it would, would be the kind of technical term, but not the way we use it commonly. Vulgar meaning the common. That's not what's being talked about. What's being talked about here is something that has honor and something that has shame. And so if you're, the, the, the analogy that's typically drawn here is this is the difference between out of the same lump of clay spinning a cup for you to drink out of that is an honorable vessel and a cup, a bowl for a chamber pot that is a dishonorable vessel, a shameful vessel, the one you push under the bed when company comes over. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I think this is one of those verses that often has a perception by people that is different from its spiritual and scriptural reality. We often think of the potter and the clay as God working us. It's a, it's a very pleasant image. We think of the potter and the clay as, as God taking us, and we're the clay, we're the vessel, and, and he is working us. He, we are his handiwork. 
We, we, we are being sanctified into good works that he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And he is, he is working us. He is, he, is, he is forming us, sometimes painfully, into a vessel that is beautiful, that is useful for him. And guys, there's good reason to think that way because there's lots of scripture that presents the potter and the clay in exactly that light. Okay, so don't hear me wrong. Don't tell me that's not, don't walk away from here going, well, Pastor Brian said the potter and the clay is not a, a pretty image. No, the potter and the clay is a beautiful image in a lot of scripture. It's just not a beautiful image in this scripture. We could look to places like Isaiah chapter 64, verse 8 through 9, where it says, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. And we are the clay, and you are our potter, and we are the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. You know, here's this picture of, of the pot going, yes, yes, you are our potter. We are the clay. We have been wrong. Lord, please forgive us. Make something out of us. Form us in such a way that we will be useful and beautiful to you. That imagery is all over scripture. That is not the way it's being employed here. Here, Paul is quoting directly from Isaiah chapter 29. In Isaiah chapter 29, in verses 15 through 16, The Lord says this to Isaiah, Oh, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Man, what Paul is talking about here, quoting from Isaiah, is not this beautiful image of God forming us and shaping us in sanctification to look more like his son. What we see being described here is not about justification and sanctification and the forming of something beautiful. Instead, it is an indictment about the pot inverting the relationship with the potter. You put things upside down. You think that you're in a position where you can question and even by extension accuse the very one who made you of not doing it right. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Who are you, O man? Who do you think you are? to flip this relationship on its head. And if you're a parent that's ever had a kid question how you do things and do so with insolence in their questioning, are you really right to punish me in this way? Then you get a taste, and only a taste, of the atrocities that are being committed here in Romans chapter 9. What Paul says to him is rough. 
harsh by today's standards, unloving. Not by God's standards, but by the standards of men today. Let me tell you something. He's doing him a favor. He's doing him a favor. He is trying to be a blessing to them, even though they would accuse him for his tone. And believe me, this is not just a cultural thing within the first century compared to the 21st century. They did accuse Paul for his tone. They said, boy, you think you're real tough when you're writing. And Paul said, yeah, well, wait till I get there. Because truth is truth. And God is God. The fact of the matter, even though he is making them furious in their self-justification, Paul is trying to help them because the creature accusing the creator in order to justify himself does not end well. It ends poorly. In Isaiah chapter 45 verses 8 through 12 Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who forms him. Man, contending with God does not end well. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? For thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. Will you command me concerning my children, God says? What I do with them in my freedom and in my justice? Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Friends, Paul is abrupt. Paul is lovingly abrupt. He is attempting to turn them from a path that if they continue on it, will end with God himself looking at you and going, whoa. Man, you don't want God telling you woe. You don't want God telling you woe is you. Because you thought yourself of a position to be able to accuse me. You'd much rather hear it from an apostle. You'd much rather get it in a letter. You would much rather get it woed up before it turns to actual woe. And Damon, I can't do it without going to Job because it's the one. We sung about it this morning. We sung about the very thing that is written... On this topic in the book of Job, look with with me, if you will, in Job chapter 38. Contending with your creator does not end well. And so here we are in the book of Job. And guys, if if you don't know the narrative here, basically the way it shakes down is this, is 
all of the, the angels are being gathered together in the throne room of God, and there is Lucifer in their midst, and uh, God looks at Lucifer and says, uh, he baits him a little bit, and he says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's faultless in all his ways. And everything he does, he fears me and trusts me. And Satan goes, yeah. The only reason that he is faithful to you is because you spoil him and give him everything he wants. You take his stuff away, he'll curse you to your face. And God says, okay. Have at him. Do whatever you want to him, just don't touch his flesh. And so Satan goes forth and he destroys Job. He destroys him financially. He kills all of his children. Yeah, sheep are one thing. Kills all of his children leaves him with his wife, and she's not a pleasant lady. And yet Job looks at his wife and says, shall we take blessing from the hand of the Lord and not despair? And so Satan comes back and God says, have you seen my servant Job? You incited me to destroy him without cause, and yet he is still faithful in all his ways, and Satan says, it's just because you won't let me touch him. You touch a man's flesh, he'll curse your face. God says, okay, have at him. Just spare his life. Don't kill him. And Satan afflicts him with all manner of affliction, including horrible boils. And Job is sitting in the ash heap, scraping himself with a piece of broken pottery. And he has three of the kind of friends where if you have them, you don't need enemies, show up and begin to tell him all of his error. And Job's hurting. And Job's flopping around like a crappie on the bank. And yet he clings to the knowledge that God is just. But he just can't understand why he's hurting as bad as he is. This goes on for years. For years. Job contending with God, why is this happening to me? And finally, in Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 11, God, after many long years of silence, begins to answer. It says in chapter 38, verse 1, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this? Notice he doesn't pat him on the head and say, Oh, Job, it's been a rough couple years and none of it was your fault. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me and Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measure? Surely you know. Or stretched the line upon it? On on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God continues to undermine Job's standing by telling him what he did that Job didn't all the way through chapter 38 and through chapter 39. And then in chapter 40, it says, The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer. And Job answered the Lord, 
after two chapters of just getting his tail whipped and said, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. And then the Lord patted Job on the head and said, It's okay. No. No. Then the Lord has at him again. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God that you can thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is a proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge that your own right hand can save you. And he continues for the rest of chapter 40 and 41. And then once again in 42. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. <laughs> I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Behold the confession of a well-saved man. That right there is not the confession of the broken, friends. That's the confession of the broken and victorious. This is how saved men talk. And I would have you note... Because I don't know if you, like, without me exegeting, I hope you saw the parallels between Romans chapter 9 and here in Job. Are you going to contend with me, big boy? Huh? You who are but the moistened dirt that I form, can you clothe yourself with majesty? Can you place yourself on my level? You act like you can. You think you can? You've been running your mouth for about seven years. Do you think you can really do it? Do it, and then maybe I'll give you standing. Where were you? When I told the proud waves this far and no further. You going to put me in the wrong? You going to accuse me? After all those years, Job says, you know what? I was talking about stuff that I didn't have a clue about. And what I will do is repent in dust and ashes. Now let me tell you something. Job never even got to the place that the guys in Romans 9 are at. If you read the book of Job, you will not find Job denying God's freedom. You will not find Job accusing God of being in the wrong. As a matter of fact, you will find Job defending God in his sovereignty, defending him in his righteousness, and defending him in his justice. 
The only thing that Job's flopping around about is he just can't wrap his mind around how God being just and being righteous would allow this to happen to him. Because Job still thought that the problem with men was stuff they did instead of what they were. And when he gets a load of who God is, he realizes the problem with my sin is not that I go do sinful things. The problem with me is me. The problem with me is I am a sinner. The thing that that offends God about me is not what I do, it's me. And therefore I'm desperate for a Savior. And so far, He's left me alive. So what I'm going to do is shut up. Because the fact that I'm still breathing is evidence that part and partial to this just God's justice is mercy and compassion. So what I need to do is shut up and pray that the portion of His justice that falls on me is the mercy and the compassion. Job defended God's justice. He defended his sovereignty. He just got too mouthy about not understanding the application of God's purpose. And that was still what he got. Man, Paul is not doing them a disservice by being abrupt with them in Romans chapter 9. He is trying to save their souls. Because contending with your creator, pot, doesn't end well. Man, let me tell you what happens when God shows up. There's a lot of, you can look at Moses, you can look at Isaiah, we can look at Saul on the road to Damascus like the third and fourth grade class did this morning. We, man, let me tell you, when God shows up, you would much rather hear it from the apostle. Because when God shows up, what those that contend with him are going to do is shut their mouths. Our mouths need to be shut from accusation lest we prove ourselves to be apart from the good things that he is doing. It reminds me of two kids. You know, you get two brothers, the younger and the older. They get in trouble for whatever. Here comes dad. Man, you know the cost. You know, if you're going to pay, you're going you're gonna to play, you're going to pay. Here's dad modeling the justice of the father and you know, the nature of the children is to justify themselves, man. All the excuses in the world, why it was okay that I did it, maybe your rules are a little too harsh. Somewhere along the way, one of them realizes that dad's maybe indicating here that there could be some mercy coming. The other one's too dense to figure it out, keeps running his mouth. And before long, the one that has seen the glimmer hope and a merciful and compassionate father starts going shut up shut up shut up lest you prove that you will not fall under his mercy justice my people be quiet 
and watch what a free and just God is going to do for you. Amen. Romans chapter 9, verse 21 through 24. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if... Shut up. What if he's going to be merciful to us? What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? What if God has endured? That's an interesting thought. God and endurance. This is God who's free. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Who will stay his hand? No one. Who can resist his will? No one. Our God is free. And yet here we have a free God showing endurance. Showing an endurance toward vessels that were prepared for wrath. Showing endurance towards guys like Pharaoh and guys like Esau who were godless. And yet, he endures their existence. He tolerates their lawless hearts for a season. Why? Why? I mean, it clearly says that he... Desires. It tells us what the desire of his heart is. It says that he is enduring them because he desires to show his wrath and power. Well, once again, I would ask, how do those things go together? Man, wrath does not require endurance. You want to display some wrath, man, bring it. I sure hope it's not coming on me, but I mean, from, a, you know, from an outside perspective, wrath doesn't require waiting. Man, if you want to whack them, whack them. I mean, Christ talks about the wrath of God coming suddenly upon the objects of his wrath. Just get them. Power? Power doesn't require endurance. Man, God didn't, when he was getting ready to show his power to Pharaoh and split in the Red Sea, I guarantee you he didn't have to work up the muster up the power to get it done. He just did it. Endurance requires time, and yet God is outside of time. God has no need to endure anything. And yet he does. And specifically objects of wrath. Which he desires to show wrath and power in. Which quite require no endurance. So why does he endure? Well, 
endures because there is something else he desires besides the simple display of wrath and power. He desires the display of that wrath and power for the good of those that are called according to his purpose. What Paul says is even us. He has done this in verse 23 in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for his glory even us whom he has called. Friends, God was patient in wrath and power with Pharaoh. Pharaoh the first recorded archetype of the Antichrist, the definition of a lawless man. And God was enduring in patience and long-suffering with him, specifically, not on his own behalf, on yours. On his people of Israel that were there at the time, on you who are his, who will read about that very narrative this very day. He endured that mess. He endured the pot, looking at the potter and saying, You're unjust. And by extension, you there have no claim to be God over me. He endured that. For time upon time, not because he needed to, he did it for you. He did it so you could see his power. He did it so you could see his glory. He did it so you could appreciate the fact that mercy and compassion instead of wrath and judgment has come upon you that you who have received the riches of his glory might understand exactly how rich they are when you see what could have been when you see what should have been only then do you see the depth of his glory and mercy to you if you want to see an example of it I don't think you can beat Korah's rebellion out of Numbers chapter 16. Numbers chapter 16. The just law of God has come down to the people of Israel. And part of that law is law that has to do with the nature of temple worship and sacrifice. And that law says that none can offer incense sacrifice or offering before the Lord except the descendants of Aaron the high priest and there are some people that decide that God's not just in making that determination I mean who is Aaron anyway that there's something special about his kids that they get to do this stuff that places them so close to God that the rest of us don't get to do. And by extension, who is God to give such a law that would require us to be apart from him? And so we're just going to tread right past the truth that Moses delivered to us from on high, from the mountain, and just justify ourselves and do as we see fit and so Korah and a bunch of his relatives they go forward and they decide they're going to offer incense before the Lord and 
contending with your creator doesn't end well. And so in Numbers chapter 16 and verse 28, we see the end of this story. Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been by my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates something new, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. So Moses says, okay, time to get down to the brass tacks. If these men live their lives and die the way men die, then all of this is, you're right. Either God's not God or you're able to accuse him and he's not God, take your pick. But if the earth opens up and swallows them and they go down alive to Sheol, then you'll know You'll know who your God is. You will know who you are and you will know the proper standing and relationship that you have with him. As soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. That's pretty dramatic, man. Pretty, pretty dramatic scene. Why did God do that? He could have killed them the moment they lit that incense. If he, wanted to show, if he just wanted to show wrath and power, could have done it that very moment. You know why he didn't? Because that doesn't give you time to gather a crowd. And he is doing this, as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, specifically that we who are called may see. And that in seeing, we may understand the depth of his mercy when exactly the same thing should have come on us for our sin but in his compassion it didn't. All Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. See, that's the point. Should have been me too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men of offering the incense. And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Eleazar the son of Aaron the priest to take up the censers out of the blaze and scatter the fire far and wide for they have become holy. And as for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered plates as a covering for the altar for they offered them before the Lord and they became holy. And thus they shall be assigned to the people of Israel. And so Eleazar the priest took the bronze censers which those, who were burnt, which those who were burned had offered, and they were hammered out as a covering for the altar to be a reminder to the people of Israel so that no outsider who is not of the descendants of Aaron should draw near to burn incense before the Lord, lest he become like Korah and his company as the Lord said to him through Moses. He did this for them as a reminder 
God doesn't need to be reminded of his holiness. God doesn't need to be reminded of his compassion. God doesn't need to be reminded of his wrath. We do. Why would he endure this from them? For our sake. That having seen it, we may know having seen what his wrath looks like, we may know the value of the compassion and the mercy that he has had on us. Paul says, what if? What if God desiring to show his wrath? Why does Paul make that statement? It's not as though what he's saying here is hypothetical because it's not. I mean, we get down to verse 25, you know, where it says, as indeed it says. So all of this is confirmed as being actual. It's not hypothetical. Why does Paul say, what if? He is engaging you to think. He's engaging you to think it through, to internalize, to think about what God is doing in very difficult situations that brings about the good of his people. What if makes you think? In verse 25 through 29, what is makes you thankful? What if makes you think? But what actually is makes you thankful? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You want to know what is? What is, is shh. He's saving you by his grace what if oh he did it and we saw it and out of that seeing we fear we repent we wait upon a God whose justice contains mercy and compassion as indeed it says in Hosea. Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Shut your mouth, bow your knee, worship, and thereby testify that he is having mercy on you too.
Don't contend with the Lord. It doesn't end well. What we're talking about here is personal. It's not theoretical. He's talking about real people. Man, he says all this stuff. You'll have mercy on him. You'll have mercy. You'll have compassion on him. You'll have compassion. It therefore does not depend on the will or exertion of a man, but on God who has mercy. He hardens whom he will. He has mercy on whom he will. Who are you to contend with God? Who are you to accuse him to be unjust? Who are you to say, why does he still find fault? Don't you understand that you are the pot? He is the potter. He is working good for you. As you sit here and consider these things, be quiet. He's merciful. And indeed, He is. You got a specific example of wrath that was being tolerated in great endurance so that you, His vessels of mercy, could see. And you get examples of the vessels of mercy and what they look like. Those who were not my people will be called my people. And that sounds great all unto itself. But it's when you consider it in its context that it truly, truly grabs the depth of understanding that we must have. In the book of Hosea, it's where Paul's quoting from. Indeed, as in Hosea it says... In chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, speaking of that day when he will be merciful to his people, in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. I will sow for her myself. I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people you are my people and he shall say you are my God. Now in Romans chapter 9 if you just read it there you get this idea okay here's this group of people and they're called not my people and they're called no mercy and one of these days because of the mercy and compassion of God they're going to be called his people and they're going to have mercy. But you'll notice Paul expected those people in Rome that were reading to be familiar with the book of Hosea from which he's quoting. You'll notice in Hosea here the no mercy and not my people are all in capital letters. And they are referred to not by plural pronouns, but by singular pronouns. They're not they, but it's he and she. Before we can understand the significance of what Paul is talking about, we have to understand who not my people and no mercy are. And you find out in the very first chapter of Hosea in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, 
For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter, a little girl. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. This is not a group of people. This is a person. This is a little girl whose name is No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people and I am not your God. And yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered in a place where it was said to them, you are not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. You want to talk about abrupt. You want to talk about harsh you want to talk about loving here's a people who had turned their back on their god who had contended with their creator who had said to the one that formed them how is it right that you should form me this way are you just why do you still blame us who can contend with you who can overcome your purpose god said let me tell you something that one right there, that little newborn baby, yeah, you call it the cute one, call her no mercy. Man, that ought to get your attention. As soon as she's weaned, the next one, not my people. You want to keep running your mouth? What you need to do Just be quiet and plead a God whose justice includes mercy. Don't think you can operate with him on his level. Don't think you know where he's at. Man, he comes to Hosea, says, name or no mercy. Man, if I'm dad, at that point in time, I'm going to be like, whoa, hang on. Justification is about to come out of my mouth. Look, I know the rest of these people may be nuts, but we're the ones that are following after you. What about us? No, just do it. And then set back when he endures with great patience vessels that were prepared beforehand for destruction and does so on your behalf, then set back and watch what the glory looks like when the mercy comes. Because we're not talking about some theoretical group of folks. We're talking about real people. There's a real little girl. There's a real little girl named No Mercy. 
is a real little boy named Not My People. No different from your little girls and your little boys. No difference. And here's the glory of the whole deal. In that day when Jesus Christ splits the eastern sky and the dead in Christ rise and he gathers his elect from the four winds of heaven from one direction to the other and brings them all together with him for the triumph of his glory. There will be a little girl there because of the goodness of the sovereign purpose and the election of God alone that used to be called no mercy, whose name will now be mercy. There will be a little boy there whose name used to be not my people, who will be called his people. And because of what he does in showing mercy to whom he will show mercy, and comfort to whom he will show comfort, and hardness to whom he will show hardness on behalf of his elect because of what he does, there will be billions upon billions upon billions that behold his face, including you and me, even us, whom he has called according to the goodness of his purpose. Friends, All things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It wasn't cheap. It was hard. There was wrath. There was judgment. There was blood. Often the blood of a son. And yet this is the way the promise has come to us. He is just... He is free. He is good. Don't contend with your creator. And prove that you are apart from the good that he is doing. Bow your knee to your creator. And prove that you are the good that he is doing. Jesus Christ is so good. He said, if you just but will, if you will just come. Sitting around going, man, I don't know if I'm the elect or not. Come and find out. Come and find out. And if you come, take him just as he is. Not contending with him but seeking him, then what you will find is that you already are. You see, that's the litmus test difference. The natural man will contend with God every time. His people will bow and worship. You want to know if you're the elect? Come on, you'll find out you are. (laughs) Come to Christ, man. Don't contend with God. Don't think you're on his level. Every knee will bow. Bow now and find out how good he is. Come and be saved. Let's pray.